Keisha Gunter, and you're listening to Roar, an energetic and enlightening weekly podcast that will help you achieve more. This weekly infusion of candid insights, indispensable lessons, inspiring stories, and success strategies for living your best life now will help you on your journey to making your dreams a reality. My experience as a Fortune 50 business and tech executive has led me to meet some pretty amazing people. On Roar, I share real talks with top executives, thought leaders, luminaries, authors, and entrepreneurs who are passionate about building the next generation of inspired, empowered, game-changing leaders. Are you ready to fear less and move into your dream life? Let's Roar! Welcome to Roar. I'm your host, Lakeisha Gunter. So what do I mean by Roar? The beauty of Roar is that it's both an acronym. The acronym stands for Reflection, Opportunity, Action, and Relationships. And it's an action. We are all born with it. A hidden power inside of us. It is a fire that is often suppressed by fear. That power is your Roar, and it's waiting to be unleashed. Today, I want to talk about innovation. Innovating your way to your best life. Yes, life 2.0. Innovation is a big word in the workplace. You hear it so often that it may seem like a buzzword, but it's much more than that. From AI to machine learning to aging workforces, right through to the disruption caused by having up to five generations in the current work environment. So disruption is rife. It is all around us. It isn't going anywhere. Companies get disrupted every day. And so do people. What we all experienced in 2020 with COVID-19 is a great example of this. Most companies have a corporate innovation strategy to minimize any disruption to their business. And so should you. We all need a personal innovation strategy that ignites our dreams, our passions, our careers, and ultimately our life. This strategy can help you navigate your way to your best life. It's time to innovate, innovate, innovate. My guest today knows all about innovation, from technology innovation to career innovation to driving innovation in every aspect of his life. He is a true example of life 2.0. Who am I talking about? Well, I'm excited to share Steve Brown. He is a futurist, an author, entrepreneur, and an advisor with over 30 years of experience in high tech. Prior to building his own consulting business, he was Intel's chief evangelist and worked in Intel Labs as a futurist, where he imagined and built plans for a world five, 10, and 15 years into the future. After leaving Intel in 2016, he built his own company, Possibility and Purpose, LLC, which helps businesses to become more innovative, more resilient, and ultimately more profitable. He helps companies understand the full potential of technology, including AI, blockchain, sensors, and augmented reality and then embraces those technologies to fulfill their corporate purpose in exciting new ways. Drawing on his many years of experience driving business innovation and change within organizations, Steve inspires people to think beyond the current situation and reimagine business, work, and our lives for the better. Of course, he's been featured on CNN, BBC, Bloomberg TV, ABC, Forbes, Wall Street Journal, Wired Magazine, the list goes on. He's a highly sought-after speaker, author, and futurist. And of course, he's written a book. His latest book is called The Innovation Ultimatum, How Six Strategic Technologies Will Reshape Every Business in the 2020s, which is a how-to guide on digital transformation and innovation. 
And he launched that book. He published the book in February of 2020. And we're definitely going to be talking about his book today. I met Steve when we were both working in Intel Labs, and he has helped me tremendously. He's helped me reimagine my career. He's helped me with many of every team that I've been a part of, really coming in and helping us to think differently, more creatively, more innovatively. And you had an opportunity to hear Larry Shoup on the podcast, and Steve and Larry were partners in crime at Intel in a good way. And I can't tell you how many times I've just tapped into their just expertise. And one of those situations where both of them helped my team on our innovation journey as a uh, software development organization. And because of that partnership over the years, we were awarded Intel's highest software recognition. And so just super excited to have him on the show today. So without further ado, let's welcome Steve to the show. Welcome, Steve. Thank you, Keisha. I am so, so happy to be here. Well, I am thrilled. I've been looking forward to this all week long. We've had an opportunity to just work together over the last 10 or so years. And so I'm just excited for this, this journey that you've been on, right? Starting from Intel as a futurist, you continued on in industry, you've written a book. So we've got all kinds of good things to talk about today. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Wonderful. So to kind of kick us off, I mean, obviously I know you, I know you very well. But I want to give my audience an opportunity to learn a little bit more about you. So tell us a bit about your background, where you're from, and maybe who were some of your biggest influences growing up? Sure. So I live in the States now. I live in Portland, Oregon. You can tell from my outrageous British accent that I'm not from around these here parts. (laughs) I moved here 23 years ago. So I grew up in England, spent my first 30 or so years. So people in in your audience who can do math can figure out how old I am now. (laughs) And I grew up in a very academic family. My dad was a was a physics professor at Loughborough University. And so starting in the you know mid to late 70s, he would be bringing computers home from work and I would get to play with them, which, you know, kids now get to play with computers from a very early age. But back then it was quite a weird thing to do. And so, you know, I was always around computers and, and my mum was studying for her degree in psychology at the time. And so to get us out of the house, get the kids out of the house, me and my sister, my dad would take us into his lab at work and he would pour liquid nitrogen on the floor and make it feel like we're in a pop video and we get to play on the mainframe and play adventure games. And I got to meet some of his colleagues and I got to meet this guy called Nick Phillips. And he was one of the pioneers of holography. So I used to get to play with lasers, bring holograms home. And, you know, it just, it was a really amazing childhood, uh, kind of steeped in nerdiness but it gave me this love of technology. And I suppose even back then, I knew I wanted to be involved with computers somehow because I could see then that they were going to change the world. So I suppose there's always a little bit of a futurist in me, even when I was 10 years old. And, and I've had a passion for them ever since. And I, I started out building them. And that's why I joined Intel many, 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 many years ago, because I thought, well, if I want to be in computers, I've got to build them. And then I quickly realized there were lots of other things you could do. So I built a career around the computing industry, but just lots of different things. Awesome. Wow. I mean, so to your point, I mean, you had a love of technology at a very early age and your family really, it sounds like dinner table was a, a bunch of cool, fun things to do. And I love that, right? Just, I can see the tinkering going on. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. And we got to travel a lot too. My dad would would work at a nuclear research center in Grenoble in France during the summers. So we would often spend a lot of time living in France and then traveling all over Europe. So I really got a love of not just technology, but different cultures and people and things that were different than what I had at home. And and that that gave me a sort of a, I suppose, a a love of adventure and and trying new things, which, which served me well throughout the rest of my life. 
Absolutely. Love that. Love that. Well, when you think back on those experiences, I mean, it just sounds like it was just so exciting in your childhood and the opportunity to travel and have all these different experiences, but meeting new people and exposure to different things. What maybe stands out in your mind as something that really helped you to shape who you are? Uh, maybe what uh, was a defining moment um, that helped you find your roar? You know, it's going to sound weird, Lakeisha, but you know, I think I already just sort of painted myself as this nerdy child who was into, into bits and bytes and technology. And I was kind of quiet and a, a reader and, and introverted. And a friend of mine said, hey, you need to come to this youth club with me. And so I went to the youth club and I found that there was, you know, a whole DJ set up there and nobody was playing music. So I started to just, I just took it over and became the DJ at this youth club. And then when I went to college in Manchester in the, in the mid 80s, I became a DJ, resident DJ in the nightclub there. And I helped put on bands and ran the film society. And I discovered this love of entertaining people and making them. It wasn't that I wanted to be the center of attention. I, mean, I was the type of DJ that hardly ever said anything on the mic. I just loved that it, the, the choices that I made, the records that I picked, the order that I played them in the choices I made for the lighting, all of it, I could manipulate the wrong word, but I could build this sense of emotion in the room and make people deliriously happy. And that for me was this defining moment of, oh yeah, I live for this. This is what I want to do. And that, that's why you know, I do what I do now when I'm on stages is it's not about, hey, look at me, I'm on a stage at all. I'm looking at the audience and, and I, I live for that moment when I see something I say clicks in their head and they're either inspired or the penny drops or they have a breakthrough moment and, and they shift their thinking. That's what I love to do. That's where I found my roar. I love that. I love that. Yeah, as you were talking about the DJ, really what came to mind was creating an experience, creating an environment really where people can just be their happy selves, right? You wanted them to just experience the moment in a good way. I love that. And how it's just transitioned to really every aspect of your life. I mean, I, you know, I recall taking some, a class from you at Intel and that right now the name escapes me, but you guys focused on really how we connect, how we, when we communicate, how we absolutely can just connect. And you talked about the, the power of improv in that moment, really, and making sure that you can find ways to invite the people that you're talking to into the dialogue and making sure that they walk away with something, right? They're just not sitting there just looking at you like a blank stare, which is what you're saying. As you guys speak, you want to make sure you connect. Yeah. Well, and as the great Larry Shoup says, you know, one of your previous guests on this podcast, you know, when, when you're a great MC at an event or a presenter, the first lesson is it's not about you right? It, it's about the audience and about making sure that they get what they need out of it. And what, you know, what you get out of it is secondary, uh, you know, at best. So uh, I think that that's, that's the key thing to recognize is anytime you communicate, it's always thinking about, uh, there's a great, a great analogy people use, which is there's always three conversations going on in the room. There's the conversation inside your own head, there's the conversation you are having with the audience. And then the most important conversation of all, which is a conversation going on inside the heads of the audience members. And you're, you should completely forget about number one. Think about how you use the conversation that you're having with the audience to influence 
the conversation that's going on inside the heads of the audience. Oh, wow. Love it. Yep. Spot on, spot on. So talk about a little bit about some of your amazing career pivots. I mean, you've had some some very fun and intriguing career pivots, all taking you down some very interesting paths from engineering to marketing to events and strategic planning to being a futurist. You know, what's been your career philosophy that has enabled you to successfully make these pivots? <laughs> you know, sometimes people thought that my career path was foolhardy, right? Because I was just all over the place. But that was by design. I, I, I loved that. I wanted to learn to do lots of different things. And, you know, my philosophy was always to be open to trying new stuff and to be willing to stretch myself and to do what was interesting to me, not what I thought was good for my career and to let that follow. And it came out of, you know, I, I started at Intel as an engineer because I thought I needed to build computers, right? And a guy called Stuart Robinson, who I am eternally grateful for, he pulled me out of engineering. You know, he sat me down in the cafeteria one day and said, I have this job in marketing. I think you should apply for it. And I spent 15 minutes telling him why that was a really bad idea. And he needed to hire someone with marketing experience. And he patiently listened and said to his credit, no, I think you can do this job. I would like you to apply for it. And the hint was, if you apply for it, you're going to get it. And I, not only did I say no again, but I walked away. He had to come to me another time. So the third time he knocked on my door, I said, the penny dropped. And I realized, oh, I need to say yes here. I need to not be afraid of the fact that I don't have all the answers and just say yes and walk through this door that someone's opening right in front of me. And so I, I did, and it was scary as hell, but it, was, it set me on a path for the rest of my life. So what I learned from that is be looking for those doors being opened. And the reason I was afraid to go through it, Lakeisha, is that I had this self-imposed identity, sort of a limitation on myself. Oh, no, I'm an engineer. I, I can't do anything but be an engineer. And giving yourself that freedom to say, I'm going to allow myself to potentially fail, but I'm going to give it my best and step out of my comfort zone. And, you know, take, I took advantage of his faith in me. He had this great faith in me. And I'm so glad that I did. Yeah, no, that's awesome, right? I mean, when you, as you were describing that, right, I was taking some mental notes and jotted a few things, right? Opportunity came knocking three times. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was persistent. And so you began to say, okay, there must be something here, to your point. He actually sees me, maybe not where I see myself yet, but he believes I can get there. And just really saying yes versus saying no, because that yes, to your point, opened up a whole new world of opportunity once you're willing to just kind of take that. And it was really an intelligent risk, right? You didn't really have a whole lot to lose because you had someone on the other side saying, I'm, I'm here to help you. Yeah, it was an easy yes, or it should have been, but it wasn't because, because of those constraints I put on myself. And I, I, I've managed many people over the years, and I'm always looking very carefully to see what constraints are my employees putting on themselves and how do I help them break free of those so that they can you know, be the most they can be? I love it. And the other thing you said was, you know, I was looking for things, giving myself the freedom to explore things that I was maybe interested in, but it may not have been good for my career. 
that is something that many people struggle with, right? And so it's interesting. I should be willing to take this path less travel versus, you know what, I'm an engineer and I've got to stay the traditional course. Give me a thought around that. I suspect it comes down to needing to to step back and define what success is for us. Success is different for different people. For some people, success is, hey, I'm going to start out in sales. I'm going to be a junior salesperson, then a middle-range salesperson, then a sales manager, and then a district manager, and a regional manager, and a country manager, and a, you know, and there's this very sort of vertical path through the organization. And it's about gaining seniority and power and probably money that comes with it. That is one definition of success. And for some people, that absolutely works for them. Great. That was never my definition of success. My definition of success was, yeah, make enough money to you know, be able to enjoy my life, uh, but it didn't need to be lavish and, and to do things that interested me and to think about myself almost like building out a portfolio of skills. So once I'd learned enough about marketing, uh, I learned about a different sort of marketing. And then I went into events. And then I thought, well, video production looks interesting. I'll learn about video production and, 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 and on and on. And what it did was when I left Intel in 2016, what I found was I had this portfolio of skills that set me up to start my own business because I knew how to do sales and marketing and engineering and promotion. And I, I could, I can be good on camera because I've been in front of and behind the camera. I've done PR, you know, all of these skills that I didn't realize I was putting all these arrows in my quiver, um, but that's the way it ended up being. I love it. I love it. I mean, I just kind of piggybacking off of what you just said, right? I mean, a lot of us have our dreams. We have goals that things that are super exciting are, and, you know, interesting to us but maybe not be mainstream. And so to that point, we'll, we'll turn the, we'll tend to turn away from those things, right? Because maybe the world won't applaud it or whatever, but you haven't done that. And so I want to talk about, to your point, you've been willing to explore the things that you wanted to do. When did you first dream of becoming a futurist? And maybe, maybe go back to that moment and, and maybe tell, tell us what maybe some of the voices were in your head that maybe were saying, I'm not sure folks are going to understand this or, you know, what was that process like for you? Honestly, it was a bit of luck. So I had this role at Intel, which was chief evangelist, So, my, which is a kind of a weird term of art in the tech industry in particular. What it means is I would spend time traveling around Intel sites, helping Intel employees understand where is the world going, where is the world of tech going, where is Intel going, and therefore, where is their career going? And trying to connect the dots for them and tell those stories. It was very forward-looking. And Brian David Johnson, who was Intel's futurist at the time, was going on sabbatical and he'd seen me do my thing and thought, well, this is pretty similar to what I'm doing. And he invited me to cover for him. And so I, I had learned by then, thank you to Stuart Robinson, to say yes, even though I thought, I don't know how to be a futurist. And I did, I covered for him for three months. I loved it so much and was successful enough that when he returned, I was asked to be Intel's second futurist. And we worked alongside each other. That's how it happened. It was just another say yes. And, you know, I didn't really know that you could earn a living as a futurist. 
I love it. I love it. So to your point, I mean, your career has enabled you to be on the forefront of innovation uh, and where technology is headed, knowing where the puck is going, so to speak. Can you talk about how you've applied those same innovation techniques to your career and what you've talked about a little bit, but how have you really leveraged those techniques to reimagine how you show up in the world in general? Yeah. I mean, so when I think about how innovation comes about, when it comes about in the technology world, the product world, it, it tends not to be some brand new singular breakthrough idea, it often comes from the creative combination of two halves of two old ideas that are being put together in a new way that's never been done before. And so to me, you you could look at your career in the same way. How can you combine skills that you have in new ways? And, you know, back in the day, this is probably 20 years ago now, almost. I was looking for a change in my career. And I saw this job. I mentioned video producer earlier. Uh, I saw this job posted at Intel for a video producer. And I so I applied for it. And during the interview, they asked me, well, do you have any video production experience, Steve? And I had to honestly say, well, I've made a few little crappy videos of my own when I've been on vacation, that sort of thing. And I dutifully showed them. They, they looked at me like, really <laughs> you're wasting our time but what i what i sold them on was i said well okay hang on a minute you're going to hire a video producer to make videos about intel and you're going to hire somebody with video production and then teach them all about intel and intel technology well that's one path or you could hire me i know all about intel and then you can teach me about video production something that you know how to do which is going to be easier for you and you know, I saw that it hit them and they went, and actually Larry Shoot, your previous guest, was the hiring manager. And he sat back and he said, you know what? Let's do it. And that's how I ended up working for Larry. And so I would encourage you, you know, all your listeners, look at your skills portfolio that you have, figure out what you're missing, and then work to build them out over time the same way you might develop product portfolio and add features over time. Think of yourself as a product. Figure out what new features could I add to make me even more effective in the workplace as a communicator, as a collaborator, as a creative thinker, and invest in the skills that are uniquely human. Now, I'm a futurist, so I'm spending a lot of time thinking about how automation, particularly AI, robotics, those sorts of things, will transform the workplace 10 or 15 years from now, in some cases, two or three years from now. And so I always encourage people to double down on the skills that are uniquely human, like creativity, collaboration, critical thinking, and so on. Wow, that is powerful. I love that. Love that. Many times I've heard, think of yourself as a business, the same thing, but I love, think of yourself as a product and what are the features do you need to add, right? Oh, I love that. And really the, the human features, right? Those creative features, thinking, things that you say that really make you uniquely human, that makes you stand out more. Right. Love it. Love it. So disruption is everywhere, right? And innovation is always at the forefront of that. What are some key steps to drive innovation? What do you think are some key steps that we should be mindful of as we look to drive innovation in our careers? Well, the first one, I think, again, is inspired from the way that I think good product innovators work, which is they're always looking for external inspiration in the world, whether it's in nature or in different industries or the way people are changing their habits and their lives. You need to be looking very broadly for inspiration. 
And I think the same is true in your career and thinking about yourself as, as a worker. You know, you, we need to, all of us, understand where the wind's blowing inside your company, in your industry, in business in general, and globally in the world. And if you're not paying attention to those sort of macro trends, which way are the currents moving in the oceans, you're not going to be able to navigate them as well and make the, the smaller decisions, you know, smaller, they're big for you, but smaller in the grand scheme of things for the world or for your company or for your industry. You're going to make those much in a much more informed way if you're spending time to look around. So don't just be thinking about what's happening on your team or in your division. Look much more broadly at the macro trends and make relationships, build relationships with people in different parts of your company, in different parts of your industry, in different parts of other industries. Build those connections so you have that broader perspective. I think the other thing I would say, Lakeisha, is you know, we, there's a lot being talked about lately about becoming a T-shaped person. And you know, that means you know, someone with deep domain expertise in, in one area. But then an ability to, to think about things broadly across a, a wide range of topics, but you know, just at, at a now sort of shallow level. I think we're moving more to an era of pie-shaped people. So as in the shape of the, the symbol pie, not as in a slice of pie. Right. <laughs> That's but true. a pie-shaped person who's gained a second or even a third domain expertise. Like if, I, if I think about the, the people who will be most in demand in the future, it's people who can straddle domains and, and bring those together. I'll give you an example. You know, the future of healthcare is going to be shaped by AI, particularly in the world of diagnostics. And so somebody who has a PhD in machine learning and also an MD is literally probably worth $2 million a year right now because they're able to straddle those two worlds and bring them together. And as we try to solve the complex problems of the future, it's going to require complex teams of people who have diverse expertise and knowledge, all coming together and collaborating effectively to solve those problems. And that means T-shaped, pie-shaped people all being able to work for each other and respect each other's capabilities. I love that. I love that. Thank you. You know, and, and this is a good segue into your book, The Innovation Ultimatum. Wow, so exciting. Talk a little bit about your motivation for writing the book. Well, I spend a lot of time consulting or speaking to boards, uh, management teams. And over the last few years, it became increasingly apparent that the gap between um, the speed of technology development uh, had outstripped many leaders' ability to understand the implication of that same technology to their business. It just got too fast. You know, and if you're running, if you're the chief medical officer of a hospital or the chief marketing officer of an entertainment company, you know, you don't know about AI and blockchain and how those technologies might completely turn your business upside down. It's not fair for them to be expected to know that. And so I realized also that the gap between companies that were had a sort of a digital first mentality and a were digital last business, you know, laggards in technology adoption was also going to widen a lot over this next decade. So I wrote this book to try and help leaders 
to navigate their way through that, to, to arm them with the right questions to ask so that they would know when they're talking to their key suppliers or if they're big enough companies to have an IT team, their IT team, to say, well, what problems, what business problems can be solved with AI, with sensors, with blockchain, with 5G networks, and so on. And to empower them to ask the right questions so that they can lead their organizations through the next waves of digital transformation that will completely redefine the competitive landscape in the United States and across the world for the next decade. I love that. I love that. I mean, and the key is what you just said, asking themselves the right questions. And that's the really the, the most important step to understand how can you really advance your business forward, right? Where are those opportunities and challenges? And you, you know, as a leader, you don't have to know the bits and bytes of how AI works. You don't. But what you do need to know now, today, it's not in, not, you're not a good leader if you're not able to at least verse yourselves in what business problems can these technologies solve. And so that's my challenge to all your listeners is, if you want to maintain your relevance as a leader in the 2020s and beyond, you're going to have to up your game on your technology acumen so that you can start to ask the right questions. I love it. Powerful, powerful. Well, digging a little bit more deeply into your book and, and really piggybacking on a lot of the things that we've talked about today. You know, in your book, you say many people feel lost when they're asked to imagine what life 2.0 looks like for them. I mean, you ask us to think about our own career and if someone snapped their fingers and, and all jobs that, you know, the jobs that we were in and jobs like it, they disappeared very quickly. You asked us to think about what of all of my experience and my skills training that I built over this 10, 20 years were suddenly irrelevant. What would I do? That's a scary thought, Steve, but I'm glad you asked me the question so I could think about it. So, uh, I mean, when you think about the future of work and, and that question, as you ask us to think about, you know, what can we expect or how can we make certain that we have the requisite skills to stay to your point earlier, to be indispensable? If you can be this way, disruption proof, so to speak, how do I make sure that, you know, when things are being disrupted, I, that I'm still a mainstay? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. So, one is, you know, you need to be adaptable and agile and willing to learn new things, which can be scary for some people because it sort of it hits at their identity if they have to admit that they don't know something. But, you know, you have to be willing to know that, that this is a constantly evolving world and we're going to need to constantly be learning to stay relevant in the workplace. So, you know, be constantly learning, developing your skills, particularly your listening skills. So you're learning all the time from other people you know, be, have tenacity and grit so that when you are given these challenges, you know, you, you know, you know, if I just stick with it, I will make it through. And you're not the only person that's maybe going through a, a difficult time of transition and everybody gets through it, you know, if, if you stick with it long enough and really focus on building the skills that, as I mentioned before, are robot proof, the uniquely human skills that will never be automated away. And very typically, people talk about the four C's, which is creativity, collaboration, critical thinking, and communication. And I, that fourth one is really important. Get really good at communication because communication is your superpower. It's what gives you influence in the world. It's what allows you to influence your boss to get more funding for your program. 
It's what lets you influence your customers to get them to be excited about your product, right? It's all about influence. Become a communications guru. Put more tools in your communication tool belt. Get really good at that. And then I think no matter what your field, make sure you are proficient in technology, not just the leaders. You need to just know a little bit about these technologies that I talk about in my book. Make sure you understand them, what you can do with them, and learn to embrace them. Because I think the people that push back against them and resist them are the ones that will be quickest moved out of the way of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. Wow. Spot on, spot on. Right now, with so much uncertainty that we are experiencing today, much is being said about the need for all of us to really cultivate resilience. And I know you talk about this quite often. Is there a recipe or a set of practices that you've seen work for building resilience, either in the corporate culture or just as an individual kind of living in this this sea of complexity that we're all facing? Hmm, That's a tricky one. To me, I I think this, this time that we've just all lived through and are still living through, nature sent us all to our rooms to think about what we'd done for a bit, right, as a society. You know, we all were cooped up in our homes and still are to a large extent. And I think it's caused people to reflect a lot on their priorities, the fragility of modern life, the importance of things in their lives that perhaps they weren't prioritizing as much as they should, like our health and relationships and, you know, all those sorts of things that we we sometimes gave lip service to and now are really cherishing. So to really think of, to use this time to think about how do we build resilience in our own lives? And that's everything from personal resilience, which means sort of uh, good mental health practices, getting plenty of exercise, communicating well with others, listening to others, having others listen to us when we need them to, building those relationships that allows that to happen. But I think building resilience in terms of your career, other than building skills to keep you relevant in the workplace, is also about identifying your own personal why. Why do I show up to work? What is important to me? What is it that I need to get out of the workplace? And what is it that drives me? I mean, yes, we all need a salary and pay the mortgage and those sorts of things. But what is my personal why? And if you can keep focused on that, and not on your identity as this kind of worker bee, then it gives you the freedom, I think, to try other things that still allow you to practice that same why in a different way. So to me, that gives you resilience to find flexibility because it, it keeps that same anchor. You're, you're, you're not anchoring your identity on, well, I'm a financial controller. You're anchoring your identity on, well, my purpose in life is to help an organization to better organize their finances. Are there other ways you could have fulfill that purpose? So to me, that's a good way to build resilience is to focus on answering your personal why. By the way, you didn't ask, but I'm going to tell you, my personal why is I am in, I'm here to help people, uh, organizations build a better future for people. That's it. That's why I'm here. And I, I could do that by standing on stage and talking about stuff, but there are many other ways I could fulfill that same purpose. And that gives me career resilience and a willingness to show up in many different ways in service 
of that core humanistic purpose that I hold dear. Absolutely. Certainly foundational to, to, to your point to establish your why. And because that's going to be your North Star, you know, when things are crazy and chaotic, that's what you point to. So love that. Love that. So, I mean, you're a highly sought after speaker, advisor, consultant, because your message truly resonates, Steve. It resonates and it hits home with companies and leaders. So, you know, an interesting question I want to ask. So if you were hiring yourself 10 years ago to advise a younger version of you on how to become the best version of Steve Brown, you know, what advice might you give him? Oh, that's a good question, Lakeisha. <laughs> oh, let me think about that. I mean, it's kind of a, what do you know now that you wish you'd know then question, right? A lot of the things that I, I did, I don't regret. There was some serendipity in what I did. I was just sort of lucky that things worked out a good way. I think it would just be to have more confidence that it would all work out and to just keep following the path I was on and trust that it would work out. I, I'm not a believer in fate or any of that, but I think if you do, if you work hard, if you make good decisions, usually it pans out and to have a bit more trust in that. And, and I think there, there were times when in my career when I wasn't confident and, and that can lead you to, to behave in a way where you appear, to, you try and project to others that you're confident and it, and it comes across as arrogance. And I think that was probably the one thing that I, when I look back on my, my career, a great guy by the name of Mike Green at Intel called me on that once and said, you come across as arrogant, some people, and it, it hit me in the face. It was just a major slap, and it caused me to really go away and reflect. As I thought about it, I realized, oh, I'm behaving that way because I lack confidence. And so I wish there was a, I could go back and give myself that confidence now and caution myself. It can stray into that realm of arrogance if you're not careful. So that's probably, that's pretty personal. I just revealed that, but that that's that's probably the honest answer. Well, and I think, you know, to your point, I'm thinking, wow, you know, this is, this is a good reflection moment, right? So what are we projecting, right? And if I'm projecting confidence, is it being received in the way that I want them to receive it? Because to your point, I think if I got that feedback, to, you know, I would have received it just as you did and really been reflective just as you just saying, well, man, did I come across that way? So I think I, I love what you said, because it's, it's, as leaders, we need to pause at times and say, OK, how am I coming across? Right. How am I being perceived? How am I being received? And if it's not what I want, then, oh, let me do a little bit of reflection and make the adjustment. So I appreciate the vulnerability that you shared there, because, I mean, hopefully our confidence I had a young person. I was on a, a webcast a few weeks ago and she said. She's a younger woman in corporate America and she's working around you know, more senior people. And so the question was, how do you navigate that? And she said, well, you know what? I just, you know, my confidence demands respect, but in a good way. And I loved how she framed that because she was wanting to make sure she was coming across, hey, I may not know what Steve knows for 20 years in the industry, but I've been here for two and, but I'm confident in what I do know, right? And that should command some respect, right? And so thank you for sharing that. Yeah, my pleasure. And I think- you know, it's one of the things I find most attractive as a quality in other people is quiet confidence. People who are confident so they don't have to sort of overstretch and try too hard and you know, dominate conversations, those sort of things. So, yeah, it's something I really admire in people. And I, as I reflect back on my career and think about those times when, you know, because that it's a consequence of taking the career path I took is that you do feel stretched and out of your depth and like a charlatan. And 
you know, to be able to quietly navigate through that without, you know, stepping in outside those bounds and, you know, faux confidence can come across as arrogance. So yeah, it's a, it's a good lesson to learn. Love it. Love it. And so, you know, your, your book title is Innovation Ultimatum. So tell us a little bit, what is that, right? And um, I know previously you mentioned a little bit about those six strategic technologies that you've shared in your book. Love you to unpack those a little bit as well. Sure. So the Innovation Ultimatum, the title of the book is referring to two sides of the same coin. So the first one is, think of it like the stick side. There's a carrot and a stick. The stick side is the competitive imperative, which is if you don't innovate, I wouldn't go as strongly as saying innovate or die, although I do say that in the opening of the book. I think it's realistically, it's more innovate or wither away to irrelevance, which almost is worse than dying. It is, yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's the reality for, for businesses that are not going to invest as rapidly as they need to in digital technology in the next decade. That is their fate. So that's the stick, is that competitive pressure that the gap between digital first companies and digital last companies is only going to widen and accelerate. And then the the other side of it is the carrot, which is the moral imperative, which is that these technologies are so powerful now and their creative combination enables us to solve problems that we couldn't solve before. That the, The moral imperative, if you can, to do good for people is stronger than ever. You know, when you have people developing AIs that with a microphone, the, using the microphone in your smartphone and cloud connectivity can hear COVID in your voice, let's figure out how to scale that as rapidly as possible. These are the types of breakthrough technologies we're talking about. So these are going to be based on, you asked what the six technologies are that I write about in the book. These are the six technologies that I think will have the biggest impact in transforming and reshaping every business, every industry on the planet in the time horizon of the next 10 years. And that's AI, artificial intelligence, blockchain technology and distributed ledgers, augmented reality, so sort of the the grown-up brother of, of virtual reality, sensors and the Internet of Things, autonomous machines, which is robots, collaborative robots, which are called cobots, drones, passenger drones, autonomous trucks, cars, ships, planes, all of it. And then 5G and satellite networks to connect it all together. And as an innovator, you should think about each of those technologies as being like a brand new color in your palette if you were painting your innovation. And it's the combination of those technologies, you know, a sensor with AI, augmented reality with a 5G network that are going to deliver breakthrough capabilities that redefine entire industries. I love it. I love it. You're speaking my language. I'm like, ah, I mean, just the power of technology and to your point, how it can really make people's lives better. And I mean, there's no better time right now than us to see the power of technology as it relates to this pandemic that we're in, right? Oh my gosh, right? Just what we're seeing there. It's hugely important. Yeah, and the pandemic has been a great accelerator for this stuff. You know, people have seen it as well. It's it's sort of a it's a diversion, right? We, we've we're living the pandemic life, and then we'll kind of go back to quote unquote normal life. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> Not at all. Um, the pandemic accelerated a ton of stuff that was going to happen anyway. You're right. You're right. I love it. I mean, talk about. Uh, I think someone said. 
uh, most companies didn't have a digital transformation strategy until COVID-19, right? So your point, the accelerator kicked in. But talk to me about AI. I mean, this is just so fun. I mean, that's the that's the first and it's the longest chapter in your book. Why did you give it more real estate than others? Yeah, it's like, you know, which of your children do you love most? <laughs> They're all created equal. Of course, I love them all. But AI is kind of the big one of them all. It's a completely new way of doing computing in that, you know, instead of running programs that take input and output, I hit control S and it saves my PowerPoint file, right? Input, output. And those programs are based on rules. AI, you give it, you train it with examples of input and what output you would like. And from that, it figures out its own rules. Now, the implication of that is we can use AI to solve problems we don't know how to solve ourselves. That's the real, and that's why it's my favorite. <laughs> I'll say it, I'll say it, it's my favorite. And because it allows you to do things that you didn't know you could do. And I almost look at AI because it's a, it's a pattern matching engine. It's able to find patterns in the world that humans can't see unassisted. So it's almost like a lens on the world that lifts the veil on reality and lets us see the world in all its amazing glory and reveal stuff for the first time. You know, it finds recurring patterns in the world and, and as a result is able to make very accurate predictions about what will happen next. It is able to see patterns in your, I mean, we, I talked about a moment ago about your voice. It can hear what are called vocal biomarkers which betray disease states in the body. So there's a company called Vocalis Health based in Israel. They are already gone through clinical trials where they can use a microphone and an AI to hear chronic heart failure, coronary artery disease, COPD, and sleep apnea, and now COVID in the sound of your voice. In the future, they're optimistic they'll be able to hear diabetes, hypertension, and potentially even cancer in the sound of your voice. This is why we're in the tech industry right here. I love that. Right? Oh my gosh. But it's, it's finding those patterns that humans can't see or solving problems in ways that we don't know how to solve. Machine vision is a great example of that. You know, all of those voice systems we have in our homes and on our phones, we can talk to computers now. That is AI working quietly in the background. The AIs just, you know, talked about in the last couple of weeks that can take the outputs, the heartbeat output of your Apple Watch. And again, they can spot COVID before you even have symptoms, or even if you're asymptomatic. That's a pretty big breakthrough. And there's a, a program, an effort with MIT, where they've created a sensor that can, it's, an, it's a radio frequency sensor, a bit like a Wi-Fi hotspot, happens to bounce back off the human body, these signals, and then it, it, they go through walls. So they can see through walls, they can see in the dark, and they can wirelessly measure your heart rate, your breathing rate, and even your sleep state, and whether you're walking around. And they're planning to use this in sort of elderly care facilities, living facilities, so that if someone falls over, they can be there right away and help them. It's also, it turns out, if somebody has disturbance in their deep sleep, which the sensor can spot, that is a sign of anxiety or depression. If the sensor spots disruption in REM sleep, and then repetitive motions of walking around the room, that is an indicator of early onset Alzheimer's. It can also spot Parkinson's disease, COPD, and a number of other conditions. So it is amazing what AI can help us see 
and the problems, the optimization problems they can help us solve. Wow, it's powerful, powerful, powerful. I mean, gosh, you are at the forefront of technology innovation. You have an opportunity to meet with all these companies who are developing these cutting edge technologies to really make our lives better. And I just love that, right? As a futurist, you know, what still surprises you? You see a lot, but what still surprises you today? <laughs> yeah, it's it's getting harder and harder to surprise me, but it still happens, Lakeisha. I mean, when I heard that that voice analysis of, of disease states, that one got my attention, you could tell. I, I described it. I think you know passenger drones are pretty cool. You know, it'll take a while to to perfect that technology and get regulatory approval, and quite frankly, to convince customers that it's safe. But you know, that could really change the way that humans get about. Think about if you're in Manhattan and you you know that horrible journey you have to take in a cab to get to JFK or LaGuardia. You know, doing that in you know eight minutes. And for not much more than the cost of an Uber ride today. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Sign me up. <laughs> um, yeah. And then the GPT-3 AI. So GPT-3 is a, is a big AI based on, it's a language model that came out of uh, the open AI group. And the capabilities of that AI, even though I watch this space closely, really quite surprised me. The fact that if you haven't read it, there's an article an op-ed that was written by this AI that was posted in the Guardian newspaper in the UK about why humans shouldn't be afraid of AIs. Oh, I when I read that, that I thought, yes, it, it's amazing. And the fact that it can it can take an image and then continue and imagine what the other half of that image might have been, or it can you can tell it verbally things like, "Design me a web page with a button on it that looks like a watermelon." And it will create the HTML code that does that. Yes. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal. So, you know, you can start to imagine software development in the future may have a voice interface, the same way we abstracted away from machine code and assembly language to higher level languages and then you know, object-oriented languages. Maybe we're going to the next level where code is written by an AI and interprets what we ask it to do. Wow. Amazing, amazing. So what makes you optimistic about the future? I mean, I watch the news like everybody else. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm under no illusion that we live in a pretty troubled world, right? Uh, there's all kinds of problems with, I mean, disinformation is probably the number one issue of our time. We have significant environmental and social challenges. We're divided between neighborhoods and neighbors and friends and you know, we have significant issues with regards to systemic racism. And I mean, I, the list goes on. We could just talk about that for a whole podcast. You know, I am I'm an optimist by nature. And I, I live in the world of technology. And I, I'm, I'm smart enough to know that technology is not a panacea. And it's not going to save us from ourselves, right? That we have to do that ourselves. But I think technology and these powerful technologies I write about in my book, they give us the tools to solve some really big problems that we couldn't solve before. And that's what gives me hope, in part, the fact that there's probably one of your listeners right now, they or their a family member may have their lives saved by a drug that is co-developed in partnership with an AI. That kind of stuff gives me hope. The other thing that gives me hope, Lakeisha, is young people, quite frankly. You know, it, it's it's traditional for the older generations to look down on the younger generations and 
you know, back in my day, we didn't behave that way. You know, all that bullshit. Right. No. <laughs> Millennials, Generation Z, and the new generation behind them, Generation Alpha, they have a much greater uh, empathy for other people. I find them to be a lot less fatalistic. So they are willing to do the hard work to try and make change in the world because they're not willing to be told it's not possible. They're not willing to say it's predetermined. I can't do anything. I'll just sit on the sofa. And I think they have a big appetite for change. And that is what gives me hope is that they will take on the baton from people of your, you know, my generation, your generation, our generation, and, and make the world a better place. I love it. I love it. So any final thoughts you'd like to leave with the audience? I'm going to do a quick lightning round of questions, but anything else that I have asked that you want to share? You know, just to, I guess to reiterate on the key things that I think I would, I would tell someone if they said, well, what do you want to, what should I be thinking about? The first thing, you know, push any self-imposed boundaries you have in your identity. Test the boundaries of those. Don't let, your, let yourself, don't let you tell yourself what you can't do. I think the second thing is have a strategy to become robot-proof. And if you are towards the end of your career, make sure you have a strategy to help your children or your grandchildren become robot-proof. And then everybody, I'm sorry if, you, if you're you know, sort of afraid of tech or not interested in tech, I'm sorry, it's 2021. It is time to get more tech-savvy and you need to start today. Without question, that is going to be one of the biggest differentiators in the workplace of the 2020s and 2030s. You're going to have to develop it, whether you like it or not. It's a bit like eating your technology broccoli for some people, but you got to do it. <laughs> it is definitely good for you, right? And you can <laughs> taste real good. You really can. I promise. I promise. It won't be as bad as you think. Well, listen, I want to just make sure before we get to our lightning round of questions that they know how to reach you, right? So, and for one, they've got it. I'm just, you got to get the book, right? I think the book is something that every person needs because for one, it's going to help them understand truly where the puck is going. And as you've got kind of outlined the technologies and the trends, but also really help us stretch our own thinking of our own, any self-imposed boundaries, as you said, but also how to innovate in my career. So give us a couple places that we should be following you on the platforms. Where should we be following you at? Well, you can find me on my website. You can't see me right now, but I have not a hair on my head. So Bald Futurist, B-A-L-D, baldfuturist.com. And you can find me on the Twitters and the Facebooks and the Instagrams. It's easy, Bald Futurist. So at Bald Futurist, you can follow me there. And I'm on YouTube as The Bald Futurist. Quite why I added the The, I don't know. It was just a funny day. But uh, yeah, that's how you can find me. And if you want to email me, you can email me at steve at baldfuturist.com. If you want to find my book, it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all all good bookstores. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Great. Good deal. We want to stay connected. So I'll say a, a quick word or phrase and you tell me what comes from. What's your favorite food? Chocolate without doubt. Okay. Love it. Guilty pleasure if you have any. A nice glass of fine wine. Yes. Hopefully you're going to have one here soon. And your favorite book? Mm, that's a tricky one. I, I, I'm currently reading Ready Player Two, which I'm quite enjoying. That's probably a guilty nice. pleasure. You know, my favorite book. I have to think about that one. Okay, all good. Now, I don't imagine you have a lot of time because I know your calendar is just probably 12, 14, 16 hour days. But do you have a Netflix addiction or is there a show that if you have a bit of time, you, you, you take a look at? Many, many shows. I love them. Uh, current addiction is Lupin, which is a, 
about the French thief. Yes, I love it. I'm ready for season two. It's amazing. And I know you probably traveled two, three hundred thousand miles, you know, a year in the past. And obviously we've been grounded. But what's the uh, next dream vacation for you and your beautiful wife? Since I was younger, I was very lucky. I got to travel a lot. And so I now have this thing where I always want to travel to more countries than my age. So a dream vacation for me is just getting a new country. This year, I'm hoping to get to Croatia and Hungary with my lovely wife in tow. And uh, we're going to try and enjoy ourselves despite the world being ravaged by pandemic. I know that's right. Well, listen, it has been an absolute joy and pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, Steve. Lakeisha, I love you to bits. And I thank you so much for having me on your podcast. A real joy to talk with you as always. Love it. Love it. Love you dearly. Thank you so much. We'll be chatting soon. Okay. See ya. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Roar. Tune in next time for more awesome talks with people at the top. Don't forget to subscribe and share so you're the first to know when our newest episodes are available. Until next time.